0: I was going to give a shout-out to Cashlyn Waggy the Aggie for being here this morning, but then she left. I think she left. But just let that be a reminder to those of you that are seniors. When you graduate, uh, don't be a stranger. Come back and see us. Cashlyn, you made it back in. I was going to say, everyone, give a shout-out. You have better things to do, right? You need to go. Is that what it is? Get Oh, man. You just made a bunch of people in here mad. I won't say who. Um, I went to College Station on Friday for like two hours, and that was about all I could handle. And I drove back home. So, yeah, there's that. We're in the middle of Philippians. We actually just started it two weeks ago. And we have been talking about how Paul is under house arrest. He is chained to a roman guard 24 7 and it's in this condition that he writes this letter to the philippians who are far far away so paul is in what city what city is he in he's in rome under house arrest and philippi is in a section that would be now known as greece and he writes this letter to this church in philippi remember he had helped plant the church in philippi There were three primary new converts there. Lydia, the rich businesswoman. There was the demon-possessed slave girl, and there was this Roman jailer who became believers. Very highly unlikely people to become Christians. They become Christians. A church is planted. Now a church is growing and flourishing there in Philippi. So Paul is writing a letter to this church at Philippi. It has been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Throughout history, persecution has led to gospel growth. Suffering is like seed being scattered. And we're going to see that play out in this passage. Look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What has happened to Paul is he he was arrested in, in Jerusalem, and then he spends time as a prisoner in a place called Caesarea. Then he is taken to Rome, and he spends two years as a prisoner there in Rome. At this point, Paul has become famous. Many people know who Paul is. Imagine how difficult it would be for word to spread back then. News had to be pretty big for news to spread. Now news spreads within seconds. You have phones, you have social media. Back then, news had to be big in order for it to spread. So the fact that Paul is well-known enough that many Christians who don't even know him know who he is, it's a pretty big deal. And so they know he's in prison there in Rome, and they're concerned about him in Philippi. So Paul is sitting in prison, and he writes a letter to the Philippians to encourage them. So I want, I want that to sing in for a minute. Paul is in prison, and he wants to write a letter to encourage the Philippians. So instead of them writing to encourage him, he's writing to encourage them, even though he's the one who's suffering. The one who's suffering is doing the encouraging. He knows they're concerned about it, And he wants to give them hope. He wants to give them something else to hang on to. I think of how uh, Pastor Gary has walked through suffering the last five or six years now and how he has suffered in front of the body and yet oftentimes he's the one giving encouragement. He's the one giving hope. He's the one pointing us to the Savior. This past Thursday evening, I got word that a very dear man in our church, John Blevins, he had just turned 70, and he was the most in shape 70-year-old man you would ever see. And he died of a heart attack driving home from working out. And his wife, Cindy, they're dear people in our church. And so I go to the hospital to be with their family, and many people are already there. And John is we're in the hospital room and he's John's still there on the bed and he's deceased. And there are about 20 people up there in this room and and Cindy, his wife, is taking it as well as she can be taking it considering the circumstances. And Gary, we gather around the bed and, and we sing Amazing Grace and and Gary's the one leading just what's happening in that room and I think about how amazing it is that the one who should be discouraged, Gary, is the one who's encouraging this woman and her family and encouraging all of us in this moment. And this is kind of what Paul's doing. Paul is in prison, and he's the one that should be getting encouraged, but he's the one providing encouragement to the Philippian people and telling them not to lose hope. It is rare that someone sees good purposes in suffering While they're suffering, most of us see maybe the good purpose in suffering a bit further down the road, but Paul's in the middle of suffering and he sees good purpose in his suffering while he's still suffering. And Paul does this because he is so gospel focused that he sees God's good purposes even while he's in the midst of this. Suffering, So he's sitting there in prison. Now put yourself in this situation. If, you're, if you are in prison, if I'm in prison, I'm going to have one focus. What is it? It's getting out. That's my focus. When Paul's in prison, he has one focus, and it's getting the gospel out. That's what he cares about. Instead of being consumed with breaking free, he wants the gospel to set people free. That's his focus while he's under these conditions. What we see in this passage is that gospel obstacles often become gospel opportunities. When someone goes to prison, what's the question that you're going to be asked if you're in prison? What did you do to get in prison? What are you in for, is how they might say it. Paul made sure that every Roman guard that had to be chained to him knew exactly why he was there. He was there for Christ. I bet they didn't even have to ask. It wasn't, what are you in for? It's like, no, I've heard about you, Paul. I know why you're here. Just shut up. Because you know he's telling them why he's there. And he's there for the purposes of Christ. In week one, we talked about Paul being the most annoying prisoner of all time. I can just imagine, it will be a fly on the wall in that room and what he's saying to these Roman guards just continually as he annoys them with the gospel. If you lock someone up for murder or stealing, for the most part, they can now no longer do those things. But if you lock someone up for speaking the gospel, you can lock them up, but you can't shut them up. They still have a mouth. They can still speak the gospel to whoever they come in contact with. Paul's desire was to take the gospel to the cities. You might not recognize this because I know in our culture today, uh, Christianity is seen as this backwoods rural religion. You know what I'm talking about? When people think of Christians, they think of the backwoods people, the hillbillies, the rednecks, the Christianity is seen as a not so much an urban, inner-city religion anymore. But when it first began, Paul's desire was to go to the cities. His desire was to go straight into Rome and straight into the arenas and straight into the public squares and preach the gospel to these crowds of people, just like he did at Ephesus, just like he did in Jerusalem. Paul had a desire to go to the big city of Rome in hopes to reach Rome So that Rome could reach the rest of the known world at the time. Paul pictured himself in front of large crowds speaking the gospel to lots and lots of people. But God had other plans. Instead of preaching to crowds, he would preach to a crowd of one. He would preach to a crowd of one at a time. As each guard came in to be with him, Paul would preach to these men. And they would hear the gospel. Instead of preaching to the people... He got to preach to the powerful, and he did it through by being in prison. So these guards, these were the elite. They had direct, direct access to the house of Caesar. So I want you to think about your own life. Where are you sensing gospel obstacles? Is it at work? Is it at school? Is it certain friendship groups? Where are you, where are you sensing gospel obstacles, and how might God want You to turn those things into gospel opportunities. Where are you not seeing the opportunity in the obstacle in the way that Paul did? Uh, Many of you know I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and that seems so long ago now. That's been, do you know I've spent more years in Texas now than in my home state? So is it official? Am, Am I officially a Texan? No. Some are saying, yes. some are saying. Who says you can never officially be a Texan if you weren't born here? Who would say that? Oh, okay. I see how it is. I see how it is. That's what I've always said, that Texans insist. To be a Texan, you have to be born here. You can't immigrate and make it official. So it'll never be official, but it's been 22 years in the state of Texas. But I grew up in the D.C. area, and the church... I was a part of, as you might imagine, was heavily entwined with politics. There were people involved in politics that went to my church. There were secret service that went to my church. And in one sense, it sounded like kind of cool. But on the other hand, I saw a lot of, of intertwining of the church and politics, sometimes in unhealthy ways. And since I was young, I've heard this statement a lot. I've heard this statement. Everything changed when they took God out of the schools. You may have heard that statement before. Everything changed when they took God or prayer out of the schools. And listen, I'm not trying to have a big debate this morning about religious freedom. That's not the point of this sermon. But what are they talking about when they say that? They're talking about a 1962 Supreme Court decision, Engel versus Vitale where they declared that schools could not lead everyone publicly in prayer anymore. Before that, schools could pray before a class or on the loudspeaker at school. So this decision changed some things. Sure it did in our school system. And we could have a big debate about this, but that's not the point of what I'm trying to say this morning. Do I want to live in a country where there is religious freedom? I surely do. But... The problem is we have so focused on changing the laws of the land that we forget that it's the power of God that changes hearts. We forget there's a different battle to fight. It's the power of God that changes hearts. And instead of seeing, we focus so much on the obstacle and we don't recognize the opportunity that might be before us with the gospel. We have limited vision as to what God might want to do. I would say it this way. If, if there are Christians in the schools, then you can't take prayer out of the schools. If there are Christians in the schools, then you can't take God out of the schools. Is our God that weak that he can be removed from the schools? I don't think that's possible. If there are Christians in the schools, you can't take God out of the schools. When that decision came down, did God say, well, I don't know what to do now. I guess I'll have to go somewhere else. They took prayer out of the schools. You think God's throwing up his hands? What do we do now because of this decision? I don't think God throws up his hands when Christians suffer. And I don't think we're supposed to throw up our hands either. While suffering, Paul never asked the question, why did God allow this? He never grew bitter, saying, this is not how I pictured it. I pictured going into big arenas with lots and lots of people, and yet here I am in front of an audience of one. I don't think Paul said that. He saw the opportunity and the obstacle. Know this, that wherever you are, wherever you're sensing the obstacles with the gospel, God has you right where you are for a purpose, for an opportunity. And it's your job as a Christian to figure out what that is and be obedient in the midst of that. I want you to look back at verse 14. Look back at verse 14. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, what is he talking about there? Paul says because of his imprisonment, people are speaking more boldly. The question is, how is this possible? Shouldn't that lead to less boldness? If he's being persecuted, shouldn't it lead to less boldness in other people? Shouldn't they be afraid of what's going to happen to them? I think we see a pattern in church history, and it's this. Boldness in one leads to boldness in others. When one person recognizes the importance of the gospel and they cling only to Christ and the gospel and they live out in boldness, it generally leads to boldness in other people as well. Persecuted Christians inspire timid believers. You may have heard a story about a guy named Jim Elliott and his friends. I have a picture here of five missionaries from many years ago. And the guy in the middle, Jim Elliott, became famous because he died at the age of 28 sharing the gospel with some Indians in Ecuador. He felt called to go to to Ecuador to visit indigenous tribes who had never heard the gospel before. And he decided to go into the jungle with his friends, and they decided to go share the gospel. And these indigenous people groups put him to death along with his five friends, his four friends. And he had a wife, he had a young baby at home. He was 28 years old when he gave his life for the gospel. He had gone to Wheaton College in Illinois, and just after his death, there were many people from that college especially that began going to the mission field, going into dangerous situations because of what this man and his friends had done. Boldness in one often leads to boldness in others. The question is why? Why does suffering lead to this kind of boldness? When people see someone clinging to nothing but Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, they realize that's all there is. That's what really matters. And so they, they feel emboldened to live in the same way. So Paul is sitting here in prison. He's lost his freedom. But he's using this situation to introduce other people to the freedom that's only found in Jesus Christ. Go ahead and do your first three questions at your tables. Okay, let's look at verse 15. Let's look down at verse 15. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Who is Paul talking about? There are some church leaders. We're not really sure where they're at, they might be in Rome that had something against Paul. So what did they have against Paul? What could you possibly have against the Apostle Paul? Well, he had become well-known. He'd become, they had become possibly jealous of him and his status. On the other hand, so they were jealous of Paul's apostleship or his status. But on the other hand, did you know that Paul wasn't that great of a speaker? If you look in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, Paul says that about himself. He basically admits it, that he's not as good of a speaker as this guy named Apollos. Paul's the one writing the scripture, but he's not a great speaker. He's not someone of, who's, who's, who's an impressing impress, an impress, person. They're not impressed by him. Last weekend, we had Sean McDowell come in for an event, and he is a pretty well-known speaker. He's a great speaker, great communicator. We put his face on stuff and we said we're going to have this guy come in and many people knew who this guy was and they came in because he's a great speaker. But do you know if we did the same thing, if Paul was alive today and of course if we said the Apostle Paul is coming here, you would come because it's Paul. But do you know you'd probably be pretty disappointed with his speaking ability? Because the people back then were not impressed with Paul. So they weren't jealous of his abilities. They were jealous of his status and who he had become. And he's in prison. He's getting all this attention. And these people are, are jealous of Paul. Some of these so-called Christians would look at Paul and they would think, you know, what's the big deal with this guy? He's not even that great. Why is everybody so enamored with this guy? they they may have seen his suffering as an indictment against him. Because being in prison, no matter the reason that you're in for, would be a shameful thing in that society. Doesn't matter why you're there, it's going to be seen as a shameful thing. It's much like it would be today if um, I've got a, a friend who had spent some time in prison. And people that know him well, know his story, and know where he's come from, but God has set him free from a lot. He's walking with Christ now. But I will tell you that his, the first thing he tells people is not his past because there is some shame involved there. He, he feels somewhat shamed by what he's walked through. And he went in for some, yeah, some bad reasons. But Paul is in for some good reasons to share the gospel or, or because he was sharing the gospel. But even if that's the case it would still be a shameful thing in that society to be in prison. And it might be these people look at Paul and say he's suffering because he deserves it. And so why is everyone jealous of this guy? Because um, he's not that big of a deal. Not only would Paul have a right to throw a pity party because he's suffering in prison, but even other believers are trying to harm him. So Paul's getting it from all sides. He's getting it from the Romans. He's in prison. He's also getting it from Christians because they're envious of him and jealous of him because of his status and saying bad things about him. This is why the Philippian people are so encouraging to him, because they have not abandoned him. They have not left him in the way these people have that are there in Rome. Here's the reality in ministry. Some people are going to minister out of love some people are going to minister out of envy or jealousy you are going to see that in the church every minister, every leader has to guard this in themselves for some of you that are going to be G group leaders you are going to feel jealous or envious of people that might have gifts that you don't have you are going to feel those things well up inside of you The people that Paul's talking about, they are not preaching a false gospel. Notice, he doesn't say they're preaching the wrong message. He didn't say that. He talks about their motives and talks about how their motives are out of whack. The problem isn't the content of the message, but the content of their hearts. They have wrong motives as they do ministry. This is what you and I might call hypocrites. That word, I think everyone knows what that word means. But here's where the word comes from. It comes from the Greek word Hipp- Hippocrates with a T at the end there. And you know this word comes from um, what would happen back then is they would have these ancient plays. And hi- how many of you in here are in theater at your school? Raise your hand. So a handful. Um, so if you're in theater, you know the symbol of theater, like it's the two masks, right? Like this on the screen. So this would, what would happen is people would wear these masks when they're in the middle of a play, and they'd play the role of a happy person or a sad person. They'd play the role. They'd say the lines. And then when the play's over, take the mask off, they walk out, and they become who they really are. So the idea is you're on a stage. You're pretending to be someone that you're not during the play. When you're not wearing the mask, you're yourself. And this is where the word hypocrite comes from. It's like a stage actor. That's where we get the concept from. These people are pretending to be someone that they're not. That's what they're doing. They're putting on a religious mask and they're acting spiritual, but it's all fake. Have you ever been envious towards someone else in ministry? What if someone, is, someone else is asked to do something that you wanted to do? What wells up inside of you when that happens? I think of whenever we choose, every year we deal with this to some extent, where uh, me and some leaders will get together and talk about, okay, who are we going to pick for impact captains? Happens every year. And every year without fail, there are a few that either come to us and say, why wasn't I selected? Now, if you come to us and you ask that question just in all sincerity, like, hey, I just want to know, was it just a numbers thing or was there something in me that y'all saw that was just a bit off? If you're asking honestly, that's a great question to ask. But sometimes people will ask almost like in this demanding tone, like they're angry about it. And at times I just want to say, Will you see kind of how you're acting right now about it? Like, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? And there can be this bad motive or wrong motive in us when someone else is asked to do something that we really want to do, and we get envious and jealous because of it. And that's what Paul's addressing here. Stephen Lawson says, Love for God and envy of others cannot coexist in the same heart at the same time. When envy moves in, love moves out. So these people, they're envious of Paul, but remember, Paul's in prison. So they're envious of his status. They're not envious of his situation. They're envious of his status. And Paul's response to this is pretty amazing, I think. We have seen Paul keep his joy despite prison. But now he's talking about other Christians. We would expect him to rip into these Christians. But he doesn't. He holds back. Why does he hold back? He just says, as long as Christ is preached... I rejoice, and he leaves it at that. He doesn't even try to defend himself. What does he say? Look at the passage. He says he doesn't care if motives are bad. If Christ is preached, he rejoices. Are you sensing how frustrating it would be to know someone like Paul? Someone who just sees the silver lining in everything. Like you never you can't get him down. The glass is 99.9% full all the time. He's in prison. He still rejoices. There are people outside prison that are Christians that should be supporting him and encouraging him. And they've abandoned him. And they're preaching envy and jealousy against Paul. And Paul says, They got a good message. Y'all should listen to their message. He won't even take issue with them because he rejoices the gospel is preached even if there's bad motives involved. I mean, he sees the, the positive in everything. You, you can't talk him down from that. And he's rejoicing because Christ is preached. So I want to address here in the room, if you're a believer, here's the sad reality You are going to be injured by people in the church. It is going to happen. The question is, how are you going to respond when it happens? Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's not intentional. For Paul, it's intentional. They are meaning to harm him. You'll be tempted to throw up your hands and say, I'm done, I'm finished with the body of Christ." I've had enough. But I want you to know this. There are people in here that are all at various stages of growth and sanctification. And no one in here is complete and perfect, including you. And so you've got to be gracious. Give the same grace that you've received. Paul shows us that we can still have unity. And I think he shows that by staying gospel-centered One writer says it this way, there is no true unity where there is no unity in truth. There is no true unity when there is no unity in truth. If we're going to be unified, it's going to be because of our unity in the gospel. That's where you're going to find it. That's where you're going to find the resources for it. True unity comes from gospel centrality, and Paul refuses to play into their games. I want to talk to, if you're someone that's not yet a believer, you're still on the fence about Christianity and who Jesus is. You are going to see a lot of drama in here. You're going to see drama in the church. You're going to be injured by Christians, by people who call themselves themselves Christians. It is going to happen. You're going to be tempted to think that all this isn't true because of what you see in here. There are some people who claim to be Christians and aren't really Christians. So, some of the ones that you think, well, they're Christians, look how they're treating these people or treating each other. Well, there are some people, the Bible's clear about this, there are some people who think they are Christians and aren't really Christians. So, you might be seeing some of that. But there also might be people who really are Christians, they're just going through a season of immaturity. And you're seeing the harm that that causes. And while the message that they preach is true and good, the motives are wrong. And there's a lot of shrapnel and a lot of damage and a lot of hurt. But you cannot let what you see happen in the church detract from the truth of the message of the gospel. That is exactly what Satan wants you to to fall into, is to doubt the message because The messengers, us, are flawed. Here's what I want you to see, just the truth of the gospel. What you see take place in the body of Christ does not negate the truth of the gospel. I think it confirms it, and here's how. Because it shows that every single person in this room is a person in need of grace. And so my hope and prayer is that whether you're a believer, whether you're an unbeliever, that you would like Paul. You would see the truth of the gospel in spite of the bad motives and the hurt, whether it's intentional or unintentional, that often happens in the body of Christ. And you'd be so gospel-focused and so gospel-centralized that it would bring about unity um, in this place. Go ahead and finish with your last few questions at your tables.